Welcome to another episode on catalyzing radical systemic change, where it's all about discovering, mapping, and cross-pollinating what I think are the necessary building blocks towards a planetary civilization ahead. Today, we are touching abroad upon a rather broad topic, which is real estate. And what you know, can possibly, you know, this inflection point we're facing as humanity towards uh, a regenerative economy have to do with real estate. I actually think it can and necessarily needs to have a lot in common, because if we look at the total assets under management worldwide, a huge chunk of that is parked in real estate. And today, my guest from uh, Chicago is uh, Juan Saldana. He's working since uh, 24 years in the sector and is actually developing real estate in, in, uh, in uh, Chicago, but also uh, in other parts uh, of the US and also in other countries. So um, as always in the very beginning, I'm really curious, curious if you could sketch one or two maybe three turning points in your biography when you became ultimately aware of the power that you have as a real estate uh, developer. So the floor is yours, Juan. Hello, sir. Good morning. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's uh, always an honor to spend time with you. You're such an intentional human being, and I really appreciate this opportunity. So, you know, I, I would say that there's three major inflection points. One of them was when I was a child. Um, my, uh, my parents uh, were immigrants, uh, came to this country and um, settled in Chicago, and uh, they bought a piece of real estate. I was 10 years old at the time. And I quickly realized that that sort of transformed and changed our family. We were able to um, sort of uh, sell the property at a future date, and that allowed us to really look at, um, you know, just look at, at how families can grow and, and evolve uh, in America. You know, I don't know how it is in other parts of the world. Um, I, I quickly became very interested in how that really changed the fa our family's economics. And so I, you know, that sort of stuck with me. So that's point one. The second time was uh, when I was in college and I studied finance. Um, I took a real estate uh, modeling class and I was like, well, this is very exact. You know, they were really in interesting in, in seeing how uh, real estate has a lot of great features like the exactitude, right? Meaning like there's a lot of unknowns, but there's so many things that are known. And so as compared to the stock market, you know, there's just so many variables. It seemed like there was fewer variables in, in, um, in, in real estate. So then uh, finally in my career, I was working for uh, the government and um, a lot of larger developers were getting incentives to do projects. Uh, those incentives were tied to things such as job creation, um, uh, changing uh, landscapes, infrastructures and as such. And I became very interested that um, only the largest developers are getting the largest amounts of funding from the city. When I looked uh, to see if there was people of color getting funding, there was very, very few, maybe one or two amongst hundreds. And I started doing the research a little deeper and I realized that this is just as an entire country. It is uh, very interesting to see that not a lot of uh, larger developers or even community developers get funding from municipalities. Um, and at that moment in time, I started thinking about this whole idea of a public-private 
a relationship with real estate. Um, and so I started to really start looking more deeply at municipalities and how they need to grow and evolve. Uh, looked at uh, the financial fiscal impacts of different municipalities and why it's important for them to continue having people stay in the community. And that became fascinating. It was a fascinating thing. And I realized that there's a lot of different markets, you know, for real estate and different types of asset classes. But uh, there's also, if you really look deeply, a lot of these larger projects have a lot of subsidy. And I wanted to make sure that those subsidies were going to be equitable, that those subsidies were going to actually um, really influence growth in those communities. And when I started looking more closely, I realized that there was a lot of, you know, mismatch. Um, so I became super interested in the, in the subject and decided to start a company that was highly conscious, right? We started looking at what is equity, what is uh, community wealth, uh, what is uh, financial resiliency when it comes to community, and that's where it all began. So all of those things were very deeply influential, and it got me to where I am today. So, so then the next question would be, obviously, since you're deploying the capital, you also need to follow the rules and the regulations of the market. But there's one part in following the system and there's another part in actually also shaping the sector. So I'm curious to listen in where you need to follow and also where you see possibilities where you're shaping already and even more where you sense is a good opportunity for you to shape the market. That's wonderful. Uh, thank you. So a lot of uh, the, the funding uh, that comes from it, you know, there's set several types, right? So we look at uh, investor capital, we look at debt financing, we look at public financing, and then there's another layer that what I call philanthropic financing um, to help catalyze community reinvestment. And so when we start looking at um, all of these things put together, um, for the public side, it's, it's highly public uh, and therefore you have to meet certain objectives. One of those objectives is your community development agreement uh, in, in our city and many cities have different words for it, but really it's an agreement with the public sector and the private sector saying that you're going to try to achieve the metrics or the measurements of impact that you're trying to uh, uh, put together for that particular community or that particular area. So there's a lot of a lot of things that need to be done. There's a lot of legal documentation that needs to happen. So that's very constricted. When you look at capital, financial capital, if you have an investment thesis, you have to be very, very accurate. You can't say, oh, I'm gonna build a mixed use and then you start building industrial. It doesn't, it doesn't really equate the work. So you have to you have to sort of stay in, in those lanes, so to speak. But what's extremely unique um, in this in this particular new new phase of catalyzing community reinvestment is that the community and um, uh, can take an active role in innovative projects that are going to create resiliency, right? And there's new, like everything that is, is that people thought was like, well, is that something that's an asset, right? Um, is a community investment trust important for the community? What's happening now is that the norms of capitalism are being challenged in, in hyper-local communities. That's, let me repeat that. The norms of capitalism are being challenged in hyper-local communities. What does that mean? That means that communities are now taking an active role in some level of ownership, participation, stewardship, things of that nature. So where the innovation is coming from really is the microcosm 
right? Uh, what we call impact, right? Is happening in the communities. And then at the macrocosm level, we're looking at these large funds. I don't know if your audience knows about ESG, environmental social governance. Um, what's happening is large corporations, large organizations are really focusing their financial portfolio into actually changing the dynamics of, of culture, climate, equity, things of that there's 19 development goals and such. And uh, a lot of these development goals are now translating into um, community-based, what I call S uh, of, of the ESG model uh, developments and investment opportunities. So I, where I think the market is going is that the largest developers are really now looking more deeply into this. Uh, we're looking at really creating and changing uh, social outcomes, governance outcomes, and environmental outcomes. And the way to do that really is to take an active role into the growth of your own community because what we've realized over, over even the pandemic is that resiliency is a must for any community. It does not matter if you're in the United States or in Europe. We have to make sure that there's you know, food, uh, transportation, access. These things are, are going to be always important. And why not in this kind of you know, world where equity is important now, you know, it's becoming, I wouldn't say fashionable, but I would say that it's now at the forefront of people's psyche. Let's start thinking very a little bit more deeply of how do we do this in a very intentional way with consciousness to really look at all of the other aspects of development um, that that create that ecosystem. And I say ecosystem because it's we're very interdependent. Even though it might be a hyperlocal community, we're dependent on you know the city, the state, and the other types of levels of government to actually trickle down, but from this point sprout up from the community. To, uh, to make change happen uh, in a way that it's equitable and also fair. Um, out of the development projects that you have already undertaken and those on the way, could you sketch a couple of examples to exemplify on a hyper-local level how that looks like, how you're doing development differently, also some of the seedlings uh, that you see where out of you deploying capital and structuring the projects in a different way, actually the people living there having a better life? Absolutely. Um, so there's a, a couple of models. One of them is we worked in a smaller community in Chicago. Well, it's, it's actually not a smaller community. It's a very vibrant community uh, in the southwest side of Chicago called La Vita or Little Village. Um, it has a culture of entrepreneurship. It has around 1,200 businesses. And after the recession of 2008, the Amazon effect and everything, a lot of the stores are starting to sort of dwindle down. And this community is very resilient um, because of, of that culture. So we helped build a, an incubator space called the Esquina Incubator. And what this project really is, is a catalyst for community reinvestment because what what happens is that um, the culture of entrepreneurship stays in the community. Uh, the building itself was a public-private partnership and impact investment in real estate. So we got philanthropy, uh, philanthropy to step in and invest in a building in the middle of the, the commercial corridor to actually be a demonstration project for the rest of the corridor. And so what we have now is a development that's around 13,000 square feet shared commercial kitchen, incubator space for small businesses, community cafe. And really the idea is to draw energy into the space 
and have people interact and come up with ideas. We know that we cannot solve all the problems. All we know is that we can set the stage, set the intention, put a project, you know, it's gonna be a very profitable project for, for the organizations that are involved. And what ends up happening is that over time, that particular asset, because it's earning revenues, can be owned by the community itself. So not only is it a catalyst for growth, it is also an economic catalyst for the community. So those two things together um, create a very strong punch. Another project we have working is on the south, uh, the south east side of Chicago. Uh, my business partner, um, who's African-American, uh, worked over three years interviewing all of his neighbors and wanted to really create a new future. He said, well, what's gonna be important for our community? Brownsville has a tremendous history. If you know, you look up Brownsville and Chicago is one of those uh, neighborhoods that has a tremendous amount of history. Sam Cooke, Quincy Jones, a lot of amazing people, uh, you know, artists, et cetera, leaders, thought leaders came from that area. But um, because of the policies of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, the neighborhood was just basically devastated without any investment. And all of the, the investment happened in the north side of Chicago. Well, we come back, P3 Markets comes, comes to the table and says, let's do something extraordinary. And so what we did was we created, we thought super big, let's create a $100 million project over a few phases. Let's find ourselves a large developer. Let's create a joint venture with them. And let's go ahead and build something just as good or better than in other parts of the city. And let's offer all of those amenities and services, cultural spaces and connectivity to that community. And so a tremendous success. The city of Chicago is extremely happy about where we are at. We're actually topping off uh, the, ten, the first phase, which is a 10 story building. The, re, the, way, the reason it's so important is because it got us in the driver's seat of working with a large merchant builder institution. We were able to connect and build this, this amazing asset. And all of the ground floor retail will be taken up by people of color, which means that we were able to subsidize a lot of that space. We worked out a deal with the developer to say, hey, you know, we as an organization want to purchase the commercial real estate assets, uh, the ground floor retail. So then at some point in the future, we can then sell it potentially to the, uh, the end user, right? Because what ends up happening in big neighborhoods, uh, when there's a, a great neighborhood that's ev uh, evolving and changing, a lot of these, uh, they call it gentrification or, you know, basically, you know, getting people out of their community. Well, the reason that is, is because people don't own the real estate. They don't own the commercial real estate. So we were like, well, before that happens, let's put a program in place to be able to, at the point where, when we stabilize the asset, have those real deep conversations about, hey, maybe it's time for you to think about ownership versus rent. So it's, uh, you know, most, most people like building big balance sheets and et cetera. We see ourselves more as building ecosystems that are going to evolve, grow and create resiliency. So as, if we do that more often, then we start to entice larger investments, larger different investors into projects, and then we're able to do them at scale. So that's basically you know, two examples. There's many more, but those are the ones that are in my hometown. What I find striking because the segue towards building a whole ecosystem for sustainable uh, conscious real estate is very interesting because at least in my mind and heart, these, these two examples in, in the neighborhood 
are not only following the market, they're, they're really rethinking the very model how real estate is done and also how to prevent the gentrification aspects of it. I mean, how beautiful that at least you have the possibility then to offer to these disenfranchised communities uh, to move from uh, rent to ownership. Let's, let's ping pong in between the different uh, layers of uh, this ecosystem. So the sketched examples are obviously hyper-local. So they're really in a specific part of Chicago. What are the other components that you think need to move and where are involved and to, to have a bigger impact, let's say on a municipality level, state level and national level? I don't know if the international level um, plays like any role for you as a developer on the ground. Yeah, I think there's, uh, well, first it, it's that a lot of the, the intelligence that's being created, you know, what I call it again in the micro level, the microcosm is not being shared, you know, and those learnings are not necessarily uh, being shared with others. <clears throat> there's a reason for that because first of all, you know, they're, they're concentrating, they're heavily concentrated in where, they're, where they are. So I think there's an opportunity to really share all those learnings across our country um, and even internationally. There's, there's, there's a lot of different markets, right? Again, you know, different, different types of asset classes. But when we think about the ecosystem, what we're really thinking about are, are things that seem obvious but are not very obvious. For example, um, allowing the community to participate and own you know, part of the project. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's it's radical, but it is because if if a, a developer is doing a project, they're like, well, why would the community own any of this? <laughs> we're we're the ones coming up with all the money. We're taking all the risk. We have this this large back office. We got to take care of. But what I've realized is that it is possible. It is possible because what we have to do is look at other ways of funding projects. And if the if the uh, municipalities or the state or other funding sources that are available, then why not have those conversations, right? It could also happen in reverse. Nothing, there's nothing that, that says that an, a, a very well-organized organization or community can't come to the table and basically say, hey, we'd like to be part of this project and own or steward, right, a piece of this project and, and basically then start to take action in their own hands. As a matter of fact, that is already happening in other parts of the country. An organization called the American Sustainable Business Network, ASBN, has been categorizing, you know, cataloging a lot of these different projects. And one of the, the concepts is let's create a book of knowledge. Let's share it with you know, all the practitioners. Let's also share it with investors that might be looking to do projects that are fun, engaging, resilient, sort of ESG labeled, right? And we're solving two problems. We're solving the problem that's happening in communities, but we're also solving the big money problem. Where do I put my money? If you hear a lot of these larger conversations around finance, it's, you know, we just can't find good projects. I think that's, an, that's just basically some type of an excuse. There's a lot of ways to deploy capital. I think that we have to professionalize the processes, be very intentional about continuously improving the models be very clear about what are the objectives and metrics, be very clear about what does impact really look like, 
you know, and people think it's just about money, but it's not. It's also about creating long-term, long-tail benefits for communities, what we call cascading benefits. For example, you know, uh, why is nature detracted from a development? Why is placemaking detracted from it? What are those actual values? If we look at like these large crises like mental health, well, if you actually look very closely at what's happening is because they have a job that's two miles away from where they live. There isn't any trees near where they live. Um, the access to transportation is very difficult. There's really not that many jobs. They're barely make, you know, making ends meet. And so of course there's gonna be a mental health crisis because they feel that they can't live with dignity. They can't live with the dignity of their lives. They can't actually do what they feel is important. And I'm not speaking for them as, as a victim. You know, I think a lot of people don't feel that way, but they also see the stark reality that is the lack of access, the lack of investment, and they don't, they feel powerless. So if the funding is there, and philanthropy has done a great job at like, let's solve these problems. They're sort of like, you know, the seed capital to get some of these things sort of going, but we have to really entice and we have to also inspire, you know, big money to say, you know what? It makes more sense for us to invest in financial resiliency in a community, go deep, and then have that community sort of grow and educate and, and extract and, and, and share from each other and then grow organically. It becomes more cohesive and there's a lot of more communal things that can happen. So I, I think that the real, the real challenge here is getting um, all of these wonderful projects in front of larger level investors as a macrocosm and try to influence policy and investment objectives to actually really looking deeper into the cascading benefits of those investments. And that's definitely possible. So, I mean, with that, you have basically taken a couple of bullet points off my list to, to ask you. What I find particularly interesting and I completely agree is that philanthropy can only be the very start of it. What we need to rethink are the cascading benefits and bake them into the business models. Like you say, long-term and long-term long, long and long-tail, long mm -hmm. um, as well as these cascading benefits. When, when, when I think about, let, let's stay with this hyper-local example. So um, in, I, I don't mind which one of the two or, or you sketch a third one. Mm. How do you think realistically this is going forward? Maybe it's easier to stay with uh, Chicago for a moment. So mm. when you have a good example, how do you enter the next playing field and unlock further funds to move into a corridor that is more likely uh, to build community uh, resiliency? That's a great question. Um, so what we need to do is a couple of things, right? We have to look, for sure, we have to look at the numbers, right? At the end of the day, although, you know, a lot of these ideas or concepts are out there, we have to make sure that, that they that they pencil out, you know, that they, at the end of the day, whether it's a longer term um, uh, outlook for financial returns or, or actual returns, 
Um, every, everyone gets stuck in the short term, three years, five years, et cetera, right? And that's, that's gonna be important for the project to maintain and stabilize. So if it does not pass the stabilization period, then you have a project that, that basically is gonna be hard to, to move forward. So at the end of the day, at some level, it has to, there has to be a measurement of success. <clears throat> so I look at it like a three-year stabilization period. Um, at that moment in time, you look at all the learnings, right? So we're sort of in the middle of the process. I, I don't wanna say that we figured it out. I think when we figure it out is when we realize that someone takes the same template and says, hey, how did that happen? What would you do different? Um, where can you shorten your timeframes? What can you, what could you do now that, you know, what would you have done that you would have done before, et cetera? And, you know, they say community development is messy and it really is, it's, it's very messy, but it's, best, it's very necessary. So as messy as it is, and, and what I've realized is that, could you imagine going to a, a investor meeting saying, well, you gotta wait three years to actually figure out if this actually worked. It's not gonna work. Most, mostly what you'll get is a lot of, uh, it's all theoretical, but once it's no longer theoretical, once you realize that after those three years, you actually have the data that demonstrates that this project was extremely successful at all E, S, and G levels, then, you know, They'll, they'll ignore you until they realize, wow, this is a gem. This is a diamond that was created through a lot of pressure and work. And I think that that's what needs to happen across the board. Everyone's looking for the quick fix. Let's get it done now. You know what I mean, et cetera, et cetera. And they want quick financial results. That's not the way the world is gonna work in the future. I think we're gonna have to start looking at longer term sort of returns because if we're always chasing profits, we're not chasing life. We're excluding life from the equation. And we're not, you know, we're not just another peg. We're not just another line in a, in a pro forma. People are not that way, but they're being felt that way. You know what I mean? If you look at, at even if you look at all, all the other types of systems that are interconnected with real estate, they're very much like that. And so we have to, someone has to take a stand and say, you know what? Let's look at the long-term cascading benefits of doing this investment, maybe, we're not making as much money in the beginning. It pencils out, you know, we meet our objectives. However, you know, the project has tremendous benefits for communities and has tremendous benefits long-term because all of a sudden that becomes a, a templatized type of project that can then be taken somewhere else. And then if you start looking at, well, how does this affect economics overall? Well, there's less money being spent by municipalities to cover some of these issues. There's high productivity from people that are actually living in these communities. Um, local local, uh, and uh, other retailers are getting high quality workforce. Well, isn't that novel? I'm not spending, you know, 50 cents out of every dollar to retrain somebody because my employees are happy, they're good. And so we have to stop thinking that the way things are going are good, is gonna be the way things are gonna go in the future. Especially when we throw in climate change, you know, like let's throw that wrench into the whole situation. Let's throw all these other challenges that are happening. We have to really start looking at how do we solve all of these things, not apart from each other as an ecosystem. That's why I keep saying, how is the real estate ecosystem connected to the larger ecosystems? And how is that interconnectivity really supposed to interact? And it interacts a lot with finance, you know, with investments for municipalities from all of the different sources of capital that are available to make those things change and actually.
as we all have limited bandwidth and as we know attention follows intention where do you consciously put your life force besides the let's say real estate development on the ground to influence the other layers you were mentioning here and there the advocacy piece templatizing the endeavors so when you take an own second horizon uh, perspective on yourself and your endeavors let's say maybe three to five years where do you see the acupuncture points you need to make to really get this I would not say off the ground, but again, like reach a different playing field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's in in collaboration. It's really looking at um, uh, looking at other types of of things that matter. So, for example, I think that nature based assets, you know, for lack of better words, assets the word I'm going to use, are extremely important. Um, we're already seeing a lot of a lot of changes happening with you know at a global scale with supply chain because of what happened with the pandemic. Um, things are happening at a global scale because of climate. Just now, Britain we rec recorded the highest temperature ever, and I'm just like looking at the data and thinking, you know, we really need to work harder and smarter uh, now. Not not in five years, not ten. It's it's today. It's or it's actually maybe three years ago. And so looking at, at all of these different uh, opportunities for the market to get involved in requires a, I call multi-dimensional conversation. So we need to really be talking to leadership. We need to be talking to uh, sovereign funds. We need to be talking to all of these different organizations that care about changing the planet, or at the very least, not wanting to maintain a status quo, you know what I mean? Um, to be able to, to really make that change happen. So very specifically, my acupuncture points would be um, continuing to advance the study or, or the investments in, in things that, that make people mobile and, and make them uh, live with you know, fewer pressures, right? So for example, if, if housing is not affordable, then we're gonna have more people becoming homeless and going becoming poor, right? Because they can't afford to live where they live. If we don't um, invest in green infrastructure as much as a gray infrastructure, we're gonna have a lot of gray infrastructure that's you know creating a hotter climate and we're not lowering that climate. And so what I see that that needs to be solved is really the communication is is Im we're emerging into a new system. And we need to create emergent economics and emergent processes to be able to handle the emergent future, the very highly interconnected future. And so for some reason, like, I don't know if, if that, that message is lost, we need to really rethink the way that we invest and that we put together all of our activities, all of our energies into an emergent world that's changing extremely rapidly. So. To, 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 to be able to take like a microcosm model, share with the macrocosm and say, whoa, we're talking about how this could be needled, maybe all over this country, maybe take some of the best practices from here and transfer them to another place, <clears throat> right? And then get real about, you know, 
what is the municipality doing? What is the state doing? How are those organizations working together to solve these problems? Because it seems like, you know, especially with, with leadership is like, well, I got four years, so I got to do what I can to stay alive. You know, my last year I have to run for office. And so I'm, I'm less interested in a lot of these other things because I have a, a vested interest or, or to, to move forward in this way. And so there's a lot of different interests that are always having control of the conversation. We need to become resilient. That word resiliency is super important. And it's actually good medicine for every, every country. I'm not saying separateness, I'm saying interconnectedness and emergent, but resilient, right? Resilient meaning that you can take hold and take advantage of the, the things that are available to you in front of you, right? And make the best of it, make it as optimized what you have versus look for something that's not there, you know what I mean? And so I think that those particular, that particular wisdom of, of, of taking what is there and optimizing it and really sharing it, stewarding it, you know, protecting it, looking at nature as, as also medicine and taking care of that is going to bring a tremendous amount of not only benefits for, for your financial you know, aspects of your life, but also your, your mental health and your spiritual health, really. So I think that that's super important that we look at and nature not as something that needs to solve, but the solution itself, you know what I mean? And, and, looking, at, and looking at those natural systems, those ecosystems, that's why I use those words, to actually inform that we're not separate, that we are all interconnected and we all have to sort of work together, you know, in this, in this flow. What gives you hope? So when we look into the crystal ball of our collective future, nobody can really make predictions. We're certainly at a inflection point. Some call it the multi-crisis. I call it the great transition. I think we're already in the middle of it. A lot of the old and the new world are colliding. Um, when you take a positive outlook and you see your own responsibility on a global level, again, you know, stay, staying with the contribution the sector of real estate can make, and you maybe take a longer stretch of time, let's make it a decade until we meet again. Where do you think, especially real estate, thinking large scale or ultra large scale can really make a difference? That's a great question. Thank you, Alistair. Um, well, you know, uh, real estate, if we think about it as um, something to own, um, it, it's always going to have um, a short-term or shorter-term um, sort of time frame, right? It's it's really about creating profits. Um, I think of real estate sometimes as building, right? Like if you look at it very very at, at the most basic level, right? It's building something, creating something. And um, if you're creating it in, in, in urban environments, if you're creating it in non-urban environments, it's still a creation, you know? And so I, what I feel is in 10 years, if we continue to think about real estate as silos, I think that's gonna be a tragedy, right? Real estate development is just being a siloed event, right? If big money thinks about real estate as being siloed, that's going to be a problem. You know what I mean? What we need to do is work with 
again with creation, right? With this idea of creation and think bigger than that single thing that's happening and then get the developers of the future to think about things like, well, not only am I building for resiliency, I'm also building for climate. I'm also building for this. I'm also building for that. So when we think about the word build, you're not building a building, you're building an ecosystem that affects so many other things. So in 10 years, what I would like to say is that if, if we're able to take uh, a different approach to real estate as build and steward versus build and own, I think that will tremendously change. There's, enough, there's a bias, right, that's, that's out there. It's called a zero-sum bias, a winner and a loser, right? It's just something that is ingrained for whatever reason. You know, I don't want to go into the historical reasons why that is, but it happens across politics, business, et cetera. But we're entering into a world where we have no option but to be non-zero sum. That means that we have to have a high level of participation, a high level of belonging, a high level of interactivity, a high level of emergence. There is no doubt. If you look at what's happening in what we call a quote unquote the murderverse, that's why people are jumping on it because people get to interact, they get to build, they get to do all these amazing things together and they feel connected to that. But it's a digital world, right? What's happening to the real world is that we're not allowing that to happen, right? The game of reality is changing fundamentally. So I'm not saying the metaverse is not important and that you know we shouldn't allow that to occur in, in its natural order. What I'm saying is that we have this beautiful planet that has amazing, tremendous resources. And we have the ability, the, the models, the intelligence, the money, the people to actually really think of it more interconnectedly and invest in that future is what's important. So what we need to do is inspire a whole band of new developers that want to create the real world in a way that they feel is important to them. So I'm very big on that. I, I would like to see more people of color, women, you know, uh, non-binary, whatever, you know, really want to take advantage of this is my community. I'd like to build something extraordinary. I want it to be backed by nature, in, in, in community with nature, in relationship with nature, and then build it. Because only then are we going to get out of this whole situation because if we keep building these massive strike skyscrapers that have beautiful windows, it's great, but it's all kind of the same, right? It's time to really change it, look at integrating nature into the built environment, integrating uh, social and governance into the built environment. It's about really inspiring the ground, you know, and the sky to work together, you know, ground the microcosm, macrocosm to work together. And it's not happening. It's just, it's happening in little spaces. But if you ask me, how do I elevate? I like to have this conversation with larger organizations, big developers that have multi-billion dollar assets to be like, you know what? Let's take a step back and look at a long-term, long-tail development. Let's create legacy, beautiful assets with nature, uh, intertwined with the community, having stewardship and governance and, and activity and a sense of ownership and real ownership into it, we'll see a whole different world emerge. I guarantee you that. So last bullet point for today, 
You wrote yourself, your peers often describe you as a creator, magician, and rebel. I sense that the people already got an idea on that, but maybe as your closing words, what makes you, Juan Saldana, as a real estate developer, a creator, magician, and rebel? Great. That's, that's pretty funny. So when we were thinking about uh, archetypes, right, of, of a person, um, you know, a, a creator is somebody who uh, likes to uh, bring things together, right? Creation doesn't happen in a vacuum. Creation happens when um, a lot of other things come together and make it happen. So the reason I, I was described as a creator, I guess, is that um, I like to bring new things to the table, right? Hey, let's try something that has never been tried before. And, you know, sometimes people look and think that that's a little wild, right? Like, why would we do something different? You know what I mean? Everything's working because, you know, it's just not like that. I would say magician because um, as, as difficult as it may look, as, you know, there's problems that require solutions, there's solutions that require problems. I think that, you know, being magical in the sense is that, you know, you sometimes create magic from interactions, from time and space, right? It just all of a sudden a solution happens from higher consciousness that no one thought about and all of a sudden, voila, the magic has occurred, right? Um, and then rebel, you know, it's, it's important to really challenge the norms. If you don't challenge the norms, it's gonna stay the same. And, and, and I'm a rebel in that sense because I'm always, you know, kind of pushing a little bit more. Well, what about that? Did you think about that? Um, and, and I get those same questions, right? And so I'm just like, sure, let's be rebels together. So I, I like to create a little bit of trouble. I'm not gonna lie. I think it's important to be a little bit of a troublemaker because if not, you know, uh, things will never change and they'll never shift into a better way. So all of them are important. You know, the rebel is like the coyote at medicine. The, the magician is kind of like the artisan and the creator is kind of like, and, you know, sort of like the connector, et cetera, is kind of like the king or queen, right? So like all those archetypes are somewhere in me. And so I kind of feel like that's important to share. So thank you for that. I think it was kind of a, a funny question, but I think I hope it, it made sense the way I explained it. Thanks, Juan, for the conversation.